Welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast, the official podcast of SCAF, the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. My name is David Rosales, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Batenza, and our guest, Rich Hesketh. Rich served as the strength and conditioning coach for the Calgary Flames for 19 seasons from 1995 to 2014. Before that, he was on the Canadian national track and field team. He was the 1988 Canadian decathlon champion and a four-time indoor combined events national champion. He also coached track for 17 years with the University of Calgary Dinos and the Calgary Spartans track and field team. His extensive track experience we touch on a lot today. Rich was also a consultant for Nike hockey conditioning programs for six years and currently contributes hockey training projects for Under Armour. Currently, he is the athletic development coach for the University of Calgary Dinos men's and women's basketball. In today's episode, we talk about track and sprint mechanics and running and all these things that are kind of controversial in hockey, talking about, you know, do we need to train sprint mechanics? What are the benefits? How much? Is there a point of diminishing returns? Rich is really an expert on all of that. We also talk about some of his key learning experiences in Calgary, how he communicated with players, with coaches, there's a great exercise for coaches, not not a training exercise, but a thought exercise that Rich did with the Calgary Flames and that Mike also does with the San Jose Sharks that I think you're really going to love and be able to apply right away if you work for a team. Along the way, we get into all kinds of, of really fun stories, as always, on our SCAF alumni series episodes. Rich is a wealth of information, a wealth of experience, and I really hope you enjoy this episode with him. So without further ado, here is Mike Potenza and Rich Hesketh. Rich, welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast. Mike, welcome back. Thank you both so much for doing this. Thank you. Rich, where did it all start? Give, me the, give us the timeline of where you studied early on. What, what, what got you into, um, I guess, the exercise science world? And then bring us all the way to when you got hired um, in 1995. Wow. Okay, I'm going to dig way back. Um, I... You know what? I was when I was in high school. Actually, my basketball coach had a huge influence on that as well. He was a physical education graduate from uh, Carleton University um, in uh, when I was in high school. And initially, I wanted to be uh, an architect and an engineer. Um, so I was taking all my my courses that way. Um, and then, really, not until so when uh, when I was in Ontario going to high school, there was grade thirteen, and you had to go to grade thirteen to get to university. Um, and just from my technical background that I had done, I, I was actually about a half a year behind in, in order to get my grade 13. And then sort of in my last year, I was like, well, I want to go into physical education. Like, this is the best thing ever. And that was an influence from uh, Pat Woodburn, uh, Woody, or my basketball coach. And from there, I automatically applied to a couple of universities. Um, and thankfully, it was just down the road at McMaster University that I was accepted, which is a half hour from where. I was going to high school in Grimsby, Ontario. And um, that was the start of it, really. My initial thought was to go into teaching um, as a phys physical educator. Um, and then as I got years into the program, I realized I kind of want to teach, but I don't want to be stuck in, the, in a board of education uh, mentality. And I kind of veered off into the coaching realm, which is basically teaching, um, but just you know, on your own terms in many ways, you know, obviously following long-term athlete development, but, um, and I, that's fairly new as, as far as I went. So you, like we're talking around like 1981, 82, uh, when I started in university and, um, you know, it was all around physical education movement and, and that side of it. And then after my first year of university, 
um, I was running track, but I was running track so I could get faster for football. <laughs> um, and, and what I ended up doing was I got hooked on track and I was training at the time with uh, the second best decathlete in the country. His name was Milan Popovich, uh, behind Dave Steen, who actually won the Olympic or won the bronze medal in 88 in the Olympics. Um, anyway, um, I was watching what he was doing. I said, I could do that. Of course, I had never hurdled. I'd never pole vaulted before. I hadn't had a discus in my hand. I was like, yeah, sure you can. But that was kind of that, the start to the combined event side of things. Um, Cause I, I knew I was kind of getting bored training for only long jump or, or only the 200 meters. And I kind of wanted a little more stimulation. I, I don't know if I'm a little bit ADHD or whatever, but um, I wanted a little bit more to do. Um, and so I thought, well, I can do the decathlon. I don't mind the running part. Um, I just have to figure out all the technical stuff. And that was at Mac. I was there for um, three years. So after my third year, I moved to the University of Saskatchewan where my coach at Mac actually ended up moving to. And then um, I spent a year there. She moved back to Toronto and I kept going out West and, and moved out to Calgary where um, my now mentor and very good friend, Les Gramantic, who is a longtime national team uh, head coach with track and field. Um, he coached me for uh, about 12 years um, right in right here in Calgary. So um, when I moved from um, 1985 to 96, 97, he was he was coaching me. And then in that 95, 96 year, I transitioned into coaching a little bit more. So um, and then it was just seemed like a natural progression for me to give back to the sport in track and field. And then along the way, here comes this hockey gig. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of moving parts going on, but um, my first hockey client was Theo Fleury in 1993. Um, he hired me, he basically scoured the city uh, to see if there's someone first who he connected with, um, but also felt kind of knew what he was doing from the speed power side of things. And um, I remember it was 1993, I'd just come back from a training camp in Arizona. So he would always go 10 days in Arizona in April. So it's about 95 degrees. So I came back probably in some of the best shape of my life, tanned, right? Like you're just like teeth are shining, everything. And I walk into this meeting with Theo Fleury and his, his agent and his, um, his whole team and had an interview. He said, we're interviewing you for a strength conditioning position. I said, cool. And <laughs> so one quick meeting is like, yeah, this is the guy I want to work with. And that started the relationship uh, with me and hockey um, in that side. So he and I spent, you know, every day together, every summer uh, for a couple of years. And, you know, it actually, you know, he'll give a little bit of credit, not all of it to some of the stuff that we did, but certainly he's always treated me really, really well. And we're, we still fairly close to the, this day we keep in contact. So, um, but yeah, that was my introduction to hockey. And to be honest, I probably made a few mistakes about being too linear with how we were training and not enough lateral movement. Um, yeah, so, but at, at the end of the day, it was more the athleticism side of things that trained. And one of the kind of the funny quotes that he he came up with, he said, you know, training like this, like more as a track and field athlete transfers to just about everything. Training specifically for hockey doesn't really transfer to anything because it's a it's just different, right? So it's and, insightful. And to me, it, yeah yeah right one of the best to play you know in the league and especially in, in calgary as an organization yeah yeah um and 
and really to that end, it really let me know that I was on the right right path from that side of it. The other thing that I, and I don't know if a lot of people know, and it, this is actually was fairly new to me, was um, Wayne Gretzky trained wanted to be a distance runner when he was in high school. So he wanted to be sort of an 800, 1500 meter guy. So when he, that's one of the things he did, he ran track and field, he played baseball and he played hockey. So, you know, and I think I remember seeing um, Ron McLean speaking to him saying, well, you didn't even know it, but you kind of started this dry land training for hockey by doing stuff on your feet and moving and just being more of a, and a better athlete because you're doing more things than just play hockey. And, and Gretz was like, yeah, I mean, this is, this is just what I wanted to do. So his work capacity probably was something that people had no clue came from, you know, that type of training when he was, you know, a teenager. And, you know, to me, again, that was sort of this, this affirmation that, okay, we're kind of on the right track of it. So once that happened, I mean, just through working with Theo, uh, my connection with, with uh, some physiotherapy work and the University of Calgary as well, um, then I was brought on as part of the sports science group um, in 1995 with the, the hockey team. That's when Pierre Paget was, was the head coach. He was the very, the, my first head coach. Um, and uh, Terry Kane was the physiotherapist who, and he was told, you're in charge of strength and conditioning. And Terry said, well, if that's the case, I'm going to bring in someone I'd like to bring Rich in. So I met with uh, Pierre and it was kind of the same idea. I met with him in the summer. I was in good shape. I was still training. So 95, I was sort of at close to the peak of my, my fitness at the time. So I, I was walking the walk as, as much as talking the talk. And that certainly impressed Pierre. And he said, yeah, let's bring this guy in. And that was really part-time. That was like, they would call me up. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be working as a personal trainer at a gym and I'd get a phone call. Can you come down in an hour and do a training session with the guys? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'd blast down there and, and, and do it. And there were a couple of guys. Oh gosh. Um, Robert Reichel, um, Czech player. Every time I showed up, he knew I was there. And so I'd come up onto, onto the bench during practice. He'd skate over, look at me, go, Rich, go home. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just dying. So, yeah, so that was kind of my introduction to it. <laughs> I want to say on this topic of track, because in a lot of ways, track is, you know, the grandfather of strength conditioning or the father of strength conditioning. A lot of strength conditioning, the original texts come from track. Are there specific skills or elements of track, or maybe specific resources uh, in the track world that you think would be beneficial for coaches of other sports like hockey to consume or learn that maybe we're not doing that well the job of right now? Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's any specific uh, technical manuals out there that you can do other than, um, you know, learning some of the, um, the fundamentals of uh, basically the A's and B's and C's of sprinting for one, because we know that's probably the closest correlation. If you can't skate, um, do some sort of sprint training where it gives you the closer, closest correlation to getting faster on the ice. And now contraction rates are different. Um, contact times are different. Um, you know, a fast sprinter has very, very little contact time as opposed to a, a skater. Although that fast twitch um, elastic response certainly helps. Um, I don't, Again, there's there's no one set Bible that I've ever read that I go, oh, this is the bomb, this is the one. It's been more of a culmination of knowledge. Now, 
with that said, sadly, 2013, we had the flood here in Calgary. In my office at the rink, I had rows of books and manual, like handwritten stuff where I'd taken, gone to seminars and written stuff down and watched videos. There was um, a strength and conditioning coach. He was a track coach, but he was more strength and conditioning side of it uh, named Angel Spazov out of uh, San Diego, I believe. He did these really dry Bulgarian uh, training methodology videos. And I'd sit and I'd write them all down. Well, they all got washed away. They're somewhere in the Hudson Bay now because all that stuff that I had, I'm like, oh, <laughs> and like nothing's transposed. I had nothing on 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 anything other than just this, these pieces of paper and these thick binders of all this information. So, uh, you know, I, now I'm running around trying to figure out where I remember all this stuff from because I've got master's students saying, why are you doing this? Um, well, because I read that and I don't remember where, <laughs> you know, um, but at the end of the day, too, I mean, we, we followed Charles Polican's uh, principles as well um, and modified around that. And, you know, he obviously had some heavy research around the Bulgarian methodologies. And, and that was very, very helpful. But again, it's been more um, trial and error in many ways. Um, I certainly would encourage anyone who's looking for um, more, like even just to hang around the track, like just find, um, you know, a mentor or a coach who, would be willing to have you just sort of stand back and watch, you know, and, and that's where a lot of, that's where a lot of the learning comes from is just, you know, getting a clear, having a good coach that you can watch and train your own coaching eye because watching something at a high speed is a whole lot different if you can't break it down on video right away. And you need to be able to respond to the athletes right away to be able to catch that. Um, and that was a huge learning curve for me too. I came out of competing I can long jump well, and I became a long jump coach, and I couldn't see what the heck everyone was doing because it was all moving too fast. And it took a few years before that training eye came so that I can watch a jump now and I can see someone do something technically, whether it's on the basketball court, whether it's it's sprint mechanics in specific for skating, specific for track, specific for basketball. And now I can see it at a high speed without having to take the time um, to videotape it. I can certainly have a like that high speed kind of video is right in my head now. So it's uh, I can't coach with a videotape in my hand or a, or a camera in my hand. I just I lose all sight of, of what I'm looking at. So um, that's a huge, huge piece for any coach is that coaching eye um, and then being able to recognize when it's time to to pull the shoot on something or give a little bit of push to something else. And, and, you know, to make sure that people mechanically are doing things properly and not developing the bad habits. I think, I think that assessing sprint mechanics in the hockey world, at least, there's kind of this weird debate of, okay, let's say we're doing time sprints. Yeah, you're shaking your head. Like, you know where I'm going with this. Where let's do time sprints. And some coaches are like, oh, we're hockey players. I don't care about their technique. I just want them to be powerful. But it's also there has to be some inherent value in learning how to sprint in that it can translate to then skating better. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do hockey players need to learn how to sprint to what extent? And obviously there's, this is an unanswerable question with a lot of gray area, but what are your thoughts on that word salad? I just threw at you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question because as I did, I mean, early on, <laughs> earlier on, I was, I was spending a lot more time on, oh, this is the arm action. This is linear. This is the movement pattern. Um, with a whole lot of attention to detail um, to make it look what a sprinter would look like. 
now knowing that and the mechanics around skating, although they're similar, you know, obviously the cross arm action has to counterbalance the push off out, out to a degree angle, right? So um, that's not something I think we should ever try and get away from. Now, do you want someone to be perfectly linear while they're sprinting as a hockey player? Yeah, I'm not so concerned about that, although um, the mechanics of where you're putting your feet and, and how you're generating that force is paramount in order for you. But it, you can't generate force if your foot's not on the ground. And if your foot's not in the right position, how are you going to generate that force in the first place? So those mechanics, I'm more interested on um, where the foot hits, hits the ground below their hip from that side of it. And in the extension, the triple extension back behind the body. So we're, you know, in, in skating mechanics, it's far more like the first 20 meters of a sprint rather than from 20 meters on. So certainly we can see um, for the number of strides someone can take. So we know that a good skater from goal line to the first blue line. So in your own, in your own zone, you can get about six skating strides in before you get to the blue line. Those are the good skaters, sort of the Jay Bowmeister type skaters who are super efficient and on the on that glide platform. Um, the guys who chop their their feet a little bit more are not quite as efficient. But if if you're thinking your drive phase is only about six steps, now that's that's maybe ten meters of sprinting. Um, so we found that, um, and I, it was interesting. I did a little bit of research and had some help from uh, when I was, I was working with Nike for a while. That was sort of through a Jerome Ginlow story. We can get to that later, but um, we did some analysis on sprint mechanics from 10 meters, 20 meters and 30 meters. And we found consistently with hockey players that after about 20 meters, um, that's when running mechanics, sort of a, the upright hamstring pulling calves, ankles, uh, dorsiflexion movement pattern, uh, kicks in a lot more. Um, and it's far less effective to help uh, a hockey player get faster doing much past about 20 meters. Now, with that said, do you never do it? No. Um, but um, at the end of the day, I'll far more spend time doing 10 and 20 meter sprints than much past that, because then you start seeing the running mechanics just completely break down because it's a, a completely different animal. Hip position is higher. Knee positions are higher. There's not the low crouch driving position as you would get with skating and then once you get that i mean I, I read an interesting article that if you think of the mechanics of sprinting sprint goes from a slower rhythm to a faster rhythm like that acceleration of hockey's almost the opposite where right so you're going fast and then you get into the glide and then you're driving 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 they're, they're in many ways sort of opposite in that mechanical side when you start thinking about the rhythm of what acceleration looks like for hockey and sprinting. That's one of the areas I think we have to be very cognizant of when we're doing uh, that kind of speed training is that it's not all about um, track and field acceleration. It's about hockey acceleration, which is a different rhythm altogether. I like that. That's a, that's a great point. That's a good food for thought that's not really talked about much in terms of the the tempo and the rhythm you know and using mm -hmm. your, your your listening skills and your auditory skills as a as a coaching cue you know i, I yeah. want to ask a question and shift a little bit um you you kind of were raised in the track world and and it seemed like you had so many really good coaches mentors teachers and you, you mentioned 
like a long-term athletic development model that was so prevalent within track, right? I think we've all, I think hockey has gotten there because of that, because of the Istvan Bali's who were from Bulgaria, but, you know, resided in Vancouver and whatnot. When you got your feet on the ground and in, in Calgary with the flames and you, and you had some time to, to see the whole lay of the land and you're full-time, you were full-time employee. Like, were you able to look at the depth of the young players in the minor league system and, and apply any of that long-term athletic development? Um, yes, definitely. Um, and honestly, early on, sort of my first few years when I was more of a part-time rather than full-time, when I didn't have as much access to a lot of the younger guys, um, one of the initial mistakes that I made more in my mind was thinking that, oh, these, these guys are professional. Uh, they know how to train. Not necessarily. Um, and not that they were doing anything terribly wrong, um, but there were certainly a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of teaching that needed to be done that I probably could have and should have done more so early on in my career. And I mean, obviously I realize that more now and I realize it sort of further in, into my career, but um, that was an assumption that I made that, oh, you're a pro athlete, you must know how to train when you don't really necessarily you train, but it, there may not have been a lot of information provided um, to the guys at the time. So, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of times, I, I, I recall, you know, a guy like Jeff Shantz at the time. So he played in the 90s with Calgary and he'd stay for the summer and train. Like, geez, I thought I thought I was training when I was in junior and in my early years as a pro, uh, but it was nothing like this kind of stuff. So, I mean, we'd be running hills and stairs and uh, doing, you know, more complex multi-joint strength training activities um, and not necessarily what you would call depth jumping of plyometrics, but more the explosive power development of, of catching and jumping and, and balance and coordination and rhythm. Um, and certainly it wasn't, you know, hop on the bike for half an hour and then go do some, do, go do your arms and then leave. And then the next day you hop on the treadful, treadmill for 15 minutes and then do legs. And then the next day do shoulders and it wasn't a body part training. It was far more athlete development movement patterns where um, I'll always fall back on the fundamentals, always, always. So regardless of whether someone is in their first year of ever training or in their 27th year of training, I'll always go back, fall back on fundamentals of running mechanics, uh, explosive power mechanics, uh, movement patterning, ground connection, triple extension, you know, all kind of the coin words that we hear now, um, I'll always fall back on those to readdress um, where someone is and what they can do and, and where we're going to go going forward in that training. So from the long-term athlete development, absolutely. Um, those fundamentals are, have been paramount in, in how I've been training and I'll, I'll never get away from them. Um, I'm always learning more about them. And it's not drills for the sake of doing drills. It's drills for the sake of establishing um, movement patterns and, and stimulating the central nervous system in order to be um, more efficient with what they're doing in their ground connection and, and that push off of explosive power. Yeah, that's, that's great. I always say they all know how to work out, but very few know how to train, right? And I had that same aha <laughs> That same moment myself, I was like, man, I, I thought, you know, like Vern Gambetta would coin the phrase of a chronological training age, you know, and yes. 
chronologically they were their experience level wasn't that high you know but i mean i i'm in my 15 i just finished my 15th season but now when you have those wow. guys for such a long period of time like okay now they they're they're able to train you know or you can put them in yeah. that classification but a lot of the guys in the beginning just they know how to work out so you <laughs> rework rework the engine right <laughs> yeah that's that's an excellent way to put it mike i mean honestly it, it's true i mean at, at the end of the day and i see that even at the university level coming up from from high school to to u sport level um everyone knows how to work out i mean just have to youtube it and figure it out from there but the actual training side of it um and i think that's where the coach becomes paramount right is is where you need to know um as i said before if someone is mechanically if things are going well you know, are you going to do one more set of that? Or, you know, are you going to do one more run? Or you're going to look at someone and say, ah, no, I ain't going to pull the shoot on you. And at, at the end of the day, a lot of guys take that as a, um, a slap in the face. Oh, I'm, you know, what do you mean? I'm not strong enough. I'm not, I'm too weak. I'm not fit. Like, what's wrong? No, no, no. Like, I'm just, I'm just, you're, you, things are just going a little bit off and we're working on your central nervous yeah. system. And, and at the end of the day, like, just, I've got to be the one to know when to back off. And it's, it's awesome when you have the guys that you have to pull back the reins. It's not as easy to have to stick a prod and, and get them going. Right. That's the, that's, that's the that's that. challenge. Right? <laughs> and, and knowing when to, when to pull back or vice versa, that comes a lot of like the art of coaching. And I imagine, I mean, you look like you should be in a touch of gray commercial. You don't look born for your gray hair. You wouldn't look a day over 39. So I'm oh, guessing thanks. back in 1990. I know I'm just gonna pump your tires out. So I'm guessing back in in 1995, you probably looked like you were in high school. So yeah, yeah. I'm curious what the challenge was. Uh, being a coach, being a young coach, younger than some of those players coming in, you were probably Calgary's first strength coach, or one of their yeah. first, if not. Uh, how was that trying to? kind of feel the room and, and institute what you wanted while also like respecting the veterans and, and that balance? Well, early on, especially because I was, I was, I mean, younger, I was 33 years old when I got into the league um, and then had a, had a nice career out of it. Um, so yeah, there were a couple of guys who, who were older than me for sure. Um, there was a lot of show me moments, right. Where um, from the demonstration side, or um, if there was some level of workout that that guys want to do, a lot of times I would try and jump in on them and like do them. I wouldn't I wouldn't be trying to embarrass somebody. I was just kind of go, hey, like I'm I'm in there. If you guys need help, I'm gonna I'll jump in with you and do it with you. Um, you know, or if or if someone is injured and you got to hop on the bike with them because they're by themselves, and I jump on there and do it too. Um, so a lot of it came from me treating uh, the players like athletes because I wasn't that far out. And in some cases I wasn't completely out of being an athlete myself early on. So I, I made, made it my due diligence to um, treat them with respect as an athlete, not as a player, not as a, not as a professional. And I wasn't, I wasn't there as a fan. Um, I was there to support them and create a trust around, um, I'm here for you guys. I'm not here because the coach told me to, I'm not here because the general manager told me to, I'm here because my job specifically is to 
make you better. And if I can give you an extra couple of years of a career, then you could make a couple extra million dollars, which that trust came a long way. And it wasn't something that happened overnight for sure. Um, Cause it was a lot of, well, you show me again, my, one of the things that helped me quite a bit was the fact that I did get an opportunity to work with Theo Fleury before I was even part of the hockey team. Um, so that repu- my reputation preceded me. Um, and he would never say it, but I suspect that um, part of the reasoning behind bringing me on um, also was the fact that I had worked with him for a couple of years and he had had some really good results because of it. Um, so um, I was fortunate again um, that the work that I had done previously leading into it um, led to that trust and the belief that hey, this guy, he's, he's walking the walk, he can talk the talk, and um, he, can, he can demonstrate and help us become better. Now, that said, a couple of times, I remember um, James Patrick was injured, um, and he said, well, come out on the ice with me, and you know, I want to at least work on my hands and do, you know, do some on-ice conditioning. I said, look, man, like, I could skate, but I couldn't skate. You know what I mean? Like, I was certainly um, athletically could get by, but, um, and I played as a, as a young kid, but, you know, you, you don't put your blades on for three, four months. You feel like you're starting all over again. So right. I was, I was really straightforward with them, right? I was like, look, you know, I can, I can tell you what you need to do. Um, but from the drill side and the, the movement patterning side, you can help me become better that way. So I, I wasn't trying to fake anybody out. I was completely honest with them and said, look, I haven't played hockey. The last time I played organized hockey, I was in, in grade six. You know, so, you know, to ask me to go out there and skate with you guys at an NHL level, that, that's not reasonable. But if I can say we're trying to do more speed endurance or we're trying to do more, um, you know, stops and starts, or we'd like to do more of an aerobic-based type workout, then I relied on those guys to to show me some drills and show me some movements and say, hey, how the heck, show me how to throw a saucer pass. Like, you know what I mean? And so that relationship building where I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be better than anybody else. I was trying to learn from them as well. Again, created the, the trust and the value. And the cool thing about um, the programming that we were doing is that guys were coming after injury, were coming back in better shape than when they went when they went out. So, you know, that value in itself, more times than not, um, if a guy got injured and had to spend, you know, three, four, five weeks with me um, training them because they were injured, um, nine times out of 10, they'd come back the next or the next summer, they'd be going, yeah, I'm going to follow exactly the program as however you've written it. Um, Because I felt so good coming out of the injury before I, you know, before it was all said and done. So, yeah, I was really fortunate again that way. You and I are very much on the same page with, I think, our hockey skill level, and especially when you're rehabbing <laughs> athletes, because I, I'm notorious for throwing pucks in their skates or behind them or whatever, and players <laughs> give me shit about it. But I'm like, hey, you're gonna get a perfect pass all the time. What are you gonna do with the bad ones? That's the that's what I tell them. People are preparing them for us, so I try to talk my way out of that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that I digress. That's uh, awesome. No, that's like Alex Tange would always say, yeah, you can't give a good player a bad pass. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Rich, from when you when you first started um, and and to the evolution of your entire career with the Flames and in, in, in the NHL, how did communication change? Like, how did it? Um, I like to believe at least I have this preconceived notion that it got better, especially at that time when early nineties, there, there were teams, there were some teams that didn't have a, a strength coach. Right. And, but now yeah. it, it's, you have the, the staffs have grown exponentially as you can, as, as you know, even from when you left um, it, it's grown. So how does the communication between your role early on, how was it perceived from the coaches and the management to when you left and, you know, all the great information you were gathering at the combine with our, with our meetings and you know, yeah, yeah. in the beautiful, luxurious uh, convention center in Toronto <laughs> airport on the South side of the, the runway. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Trying to talk over the airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a, you know what, that's a great, uh, great bit of reflection on that side of it. Cause um like I said, in 95, I was like part-time, like ridiculously part-time. So I, I, I think I was called in probably six times all year. Um, you know, and like I said, I'm in the middle of a training session with a client at the Edgemont Club in Northwest Calgary. And they go, uh, can you be there? Like it's 10 o'clock. Can you be there at noon? We're, we're doing a workout. I was like, Ugh. the thing is I prepared my clients and everyone that I was working with. I said, this is happening. Um, you know, I may get a call and they were all like, Hey, you know, good for you. Let's go. Um, and then every year, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So it's probably 99. So four, four years in, uh, was my first sort of employment contract. So I was a contracted employee to do some work with the team. Um, I was in the dressing room all the time. Like it was a lot of sweat equity early on and, Basically, uh, we'll just let you do your thing, um, you know, analyze the testing results. Um, and I had a great team to help me with that, with the, the, the lab here at the University of Calgary. Um, we had some, some great support on that side. Um, and it was a, more of a collaborative effort on that, on that end. And then in 99, uh, it basically became a one-man show. Honestly, it was me doing programming for, for the farm team, for the prospects, and for the for the big team, um, so it became more, and it it did change actually with general managers. Like we talked a little bit about the number of coaches that I I had as I as I went through my career, but I also had three different general managers. <laughs> so you know there was uh, you know Al Coates was the first general manager who who brought me in, um, you know treated me really well and sort of gave that progression of. Um, you know, we do a good job this year, we'll go on to the next year, then we'll give you a two-year part-time contract. And then it became full-time employment more when Craig Button was the general manager. And then it came on to, uh, who's after Craig? Gosh, Craig was the, the Daryl Sutter hire. So he hired Daryl. Um, and then Daryl became the general manager. And then, oh, I guess I, I'm short one because then there was Brad Feaster, or uh, Jay, Jay Feaster. Yeah. Um, Jay Feaster. Brian Burke was was president of, of hockey ops and ended up uh, moving into the general manager position. And then uh, just as Brad Tree Living was coming in, I was going out. So yeah, it was good. those communications changed based on both coaching staff, uh, but also um, general managers as well. Um, and I was actually honestly I was pretty disappointed that I didn't get a chance to work with Brad Tree Living because he seems like a pretty 
um, progressive uh, general manager um, and really open to um, being a little more progressive rather than reactive when it com comes to the strength and conditioning side. Um, so not a regret, but I wish I could have still uh, been part of that process, um, regardless of how long I lasted after. But um, he seems like a, a quite a good guy from that side of it. So, but all the all of them sort of had their own ways of communicating. And coaches, again, you know, some would just say, "I'm just you do your thing. You you're the expert. You do your thing." And others wanted to have their hands in it, um, you know, and be a lot more controlling of what was going on. Um, and it it varied. So. I think nine different head coaches. There were nine different methods of communication. <laughs> so, and Daryl said it doesn't strike me as someone who wants to see the analytics. <laughs> so. Well, no, but you know what? Uh, to that side of it, to be honest with you, Daryl was honestly the first coach to sit down with me, and we went player by player. So we sat around the board uh, boardroom table at the coach's office, and there was uh, me and. Um, Oh, Rich Preston was there, and I think uh, um, Jim Playfair, like these are all the assistant coaches were there. And he sat around and went from player to player and said, um, I, I need, well, Jerome again, you know what Jerome needs. You've been doing enough with him. You just do what you do. Um, but because um, like Stefan Yell, uh, I need him to, you know, play some of the hardest minutes. He's going to go 45 seconds hard as he can. He's going to get a minute and a half rest and I'm going to throw him back out there again. And I need him to be able to do that over and over and over again. Same thing with Chris Clark. And he, we went through person to person. He said, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't, I don't care how you can do it. Just do your job and make sure that these guys know how to train so that they can accomplish what I need from them when it comes down to it. And again, that was the first, that was the first coach to actually break that down to me and like, Holy cow what a difference it made for me for my programming when I was sort of, okay, where do I slot? Where do I slot the skill guys? Where do I slot the grinders? Where do I throw the defensemen? You know, what do I do with the goaltenders? You know, and that's, you know, it's a totally different mindset when you know a guy's only going to be playing 10 minutes as opposed to a guy's going to play 23 or 30. Yeah. Right. That, that's I, it, it's, it's so true. Like that's probably in my book, like one of the, if not the most important, exercise to go through with your coach so there's no it's tough enough to bridge the gap between on ice performance and off ice training and, and having that transfer you know to begin with you know your strongest squatters aren't your strongest guys on the ice maybe right you know you've right, seen right. But, but to get on the same page and find out what they're seeing and try to bridge that gap like we go through that exercise here and i've done it i've done it every year and and i and, and there's been reluctancy, like, oh, we don't have enough time for this, but you got to make time, right? That's that yeah. important. Yeah. We do it for our, our minor league team, the Barracuda, and our San Jose team. You know, it's it's, Amazing. That, it's that important. It it's, can be overlooked, right? It could be just a, you could kind of not, you kind of forget about it and get, get lost in the shuffle with end of the year meetings and, and guys want to get out of town and stuff like that. But you're right. That's, a, that's an important factor, if not one of the yeah. important factors for a young listener out there any sport too so yeah absolutely and you know to it, to that side of it i mean as a, a strength and conditioning coach athlete development coach whatever you want to call us these days um you're we're in the trenches right like 
we're, we're culture builders. Um, you, you know, we have the ear and the trust of the players. So you may hear things that maybe you don't want to hear. You, you're going to hear things that you want to hear. Um, but as long as they're, they're trusting that what you're doing is um, for in their best interest, then they're going to, they're going to go to the wall for you too. Um, and I think the coaches need to realize that um, we are a bit of a lifeline to the culture of the, the group that walks in the, in and out of the dressing room every day. Um, you know, there's, there's been lots of documentation around that side of it, how important that the staff, like the, the, the support staff, the people who are in the trenches every day, that's such a huge part of, of creating the culture that both the coach will want, the general manager will want, but you know, the players will want too. So, yeah, I mean, that's such a massive piece and, and as strength and conditioning coaches, you kind of have to you have to be the squeaky wheel, right? You've got to be go in there and say, "Hey, remember me over here? You know, we got a summer coming up that's pretty important to our players. Um, you know, I need some direction from you guys. What do you see out of this player? And if it's someone who you're hoping is going to be a cornerstone to your to your team, then they sure better have their act together, and they need to know what they're doing, right? Yeah, like I I know it it it, it clarifies a lot of things too going into an off season because now you know what the team expectations are from your coaches and your your performance coach or strength and conditioning coach, and that's based on what you need to prepare for how we they how we need you to play. A lot of guys I think you can agree will go back to their private strength coaches in the summertime and they may be telling them something different. They may be like we got to work on you know the eccentric phase of your jumps or whatever you know like. Right, right. But, but there's when when there's lack of communication between how we need this guy to play and the energy systems that need to go along with it and the strength qualities that need to go along with it, then there then then that player he's probably setting himself up for you know uh, not meeting not meeting expectations. You know. So. Yeah. No, I completely agree. That's a great point. Yeah. I had a I had a writing coach. I'm not a coach. A, a writing professor say your writing can never be too clear. And I think that applies to so much, including this. Your communication between between the rest of your staff and your players can never be too clear. Um, you teased you teased the Jerome McGinley Nike story. So why don't you? <laughs> yeah. You teased it, so now I'm going to ask it. So what is what is the Jerome McGinley Nike story? Well, um, 2004. So after um, we had our long playoff run, then we had the lockout year, right? So um, we had no we had no hockey. We were all trying to figure it all out. Um, and, uh, Jerome was approached by Nike and they said, you know, we'd like you to become a Nike athlete. And he was like, yep, sure. And by the way, we'd like to do some, uh, some features on how to train, like how you train and, and what you do and what would be good for kids. And Egg was like, ah, you should probably talk to Rich because he's been writing my program and, you know, for from 97 until 2004 at the time. Uh, 0405. Um, he said, if you, if you really want to, you know, get into that, you should maybe chat with chat with Rich. So kind of out of the blue, he gave me a call in the summer. Um, it was around, I think around May. Um, so 2005, five must be. Um, he said, Nike's going to call you, Nike Canada. Um, they're, this is the proposal that they're wanting. Um, have a talk with them. So they gave me a call. They had a talk. Said um, this was Friday. They said, "Can you fly out on Sunday? Um, we want to we want to sign you up." 
I was like, okay. <laughs> I, and, it, and that was it. Like all of a sudden I was, I was, I was a Nike consultant. Um, Jerome was a Nike athlete. Um, but again, that was all part and parcel for Jerome saying, uh, you know, probably just, just get rich involved and he can help out. So I ended up becoming part of uh, uh, the Nike consulting group where we were developing their website at the time for hockey training. And um, Nike Canada had taken a huge part of, um, of Nike as a, you know, gear that you wear underneath, but then they also got into buying Bauer and getting the out, out, outer gear and sticks and skates and we're going, going bonkers with that. So I was heavily involved in that, that side of things and developing of the training shoe specific for hockey, some of the clothing, some of the gear, um, you know, had an opportunity to go to Portland and see their campus. Um, and the research development there was just amazing. Like they're, they're on a different level, the people in research and development there. Um, and, and so Ig and I got involved that way. And then along the way, um, you know, Sports Illustrated got involved and uh, magazines and they were trying to promote him and commercial shoots and everything else. And so they were kind of popping me around because I was sort of, I was Iggy's, I don't know, I was kind of his trainer, but not his trainer. And like, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was super fun. Um, ended up in a couple of posters and commercials kind of hanging out behind him, trying to hold him back from ripping my arms off running. Um, but you know, and then the, the, we, you know, flew out to Kelowna and they did a feature of him kind of around his home, um, you know, Jerome McGinley's training. And so they interviewed me, they interviewed him, they took a bunch of pictures and said, Hey, you got a medicine ball. And I said, no, they don't have a medicine ball. Oh, let's throw this rock. So he was heaving a rock like in the middle of Kelowna, just, and it looked cool. Like it was such a neat feature that they did. They said, well, you don't have a medicine ball and why don't we do some heaving of, of some heavy, heavy items. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty fun. Like it was, it was really interesting. And again, one more um, way for me to learn more, you know, having, you know, Nike research and development right in my back pocket. So um, there was a lot of ideas around, um, you know, testing protocols and, and how to do testing around hockey specific so that kids could say, well, if I can do, you know, a two hop standing long jump this far, then um, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be good. But if I, if I'm no good at it, then this is what I have to work on or a side medicine ball heave. If I can throw, you know, a, a six pound medicine ball, um, you know, 20 meters or 15 meters or 10 meters, whatever it is, then we had some indices as to um, where to slot them in on their categories. So it, that's all been disbanded now, but um, again, I had all these really interesting, smart people <laughs> that I could rely on. Um, that that helped me along the way too. So um, it was a great experience. I was with with that company for seven years. So there's uh, lots of cool stuff with that. What did you, Jerome Aginla seems, I mean, you seem to speak very highly of him, have a pretty close relationship with him. Uh, what are some qualities that make him, maybe not even a great hockey player, but a great person and, and a great athlete? And, and what are some things you learned from him? Um, gosh, that's a huge question because what, what you see of Jerome when people say, Oh, nice guy, it's, that's real. Like that's, that's not an act. Um, he's, he's extremely kind. And I think, you know, just part of his upbringing, um, with his family produced that, but he was, um, massively competitive, um, but humble all at the same time. 
um, you know, the, lots of stories of, of, you know, the guys who flip the switch when they go on the ice and they're just um, competitive grinding, you know, they'll knock your teeth out if you, if, if you're in their way, that was him. But then off, off the ice, um, he, he was, he was all about learning. He just, he just was like a sponge, wanted to learn as much as he can about how his body responded to training. So he would come to me and say, well, I read in this men's, men's fitness magazine about, you know, how to work your core. And I was like, mm, well, maybe we could modify that a little bit. Or, you know, how can I get my shoulders bigger as well? <laughs> yeah, you know, that, getting big is not the issue. Being strong and be able to make it functional is, is the issue. Um, you know, and again, you know, how do I get faster? Well, you gotta, you gotta sprint, you gotta run. Oh, okay. Well, I'll sprint. That's what I'll do. And he was so, um, humble in that he, he was, he was open to the learning and open, um, to never had such a big ego where he said, well, I know exactly what I'm doing and you can't teach me anything. Um, he was, he, he wanted to learn as much as he could and would lean on me from that side of it. Um, and he, he honestly, he taught me um, about that humility, about um, never being too big for your britches, regardless of, of whatever contract he signed. He was always going to come into camp. He said, I want to be the fittest guy. I always want to be the fittest guy. And that was the competition side. So that was, that was the mindset that um, certainly no complacency in that, in that mind at all. And actually, one of the things that remember he was when he had his kids and he said, yeah, when I'm playing with my kids, I'm going to tell my kids I'm going to beat you. And every time I'm just going to be, I'm going to try as hard as I can to win so that when you beat me, you know, I didn't hand it to you. And that stuck with me. And and I've, I honestly I've done that with my son. And, you know, he, my son would go, Dad, take it easy on me. I'd be like, no, I'm not going to take it easy on you. Because the day that you beat me doing something, you know that it's real. I didn't hand it to you. And I, to that side, like I've hung on to that for forever. And, you know, I'll do that with my grandkids. I'll do it with, with, with everyone. If you beat me because you beat me, not because I gave it to you. And so I remember the first time my son beat me in a bowling game. It's bowling. But at the end of the day, he beat me. He's, he looked at me. He's like, he was so excited, like the look on his face. Then he, he was, what, 13, 14 years old? You know, great, a 13-year-old beat me bowling, but whatever. Like, at the end of the day, you know, the excitement on his face to know that this wasn't handed to me. I actually had to earn this. It was such a huge, like, huge learning curve for me. So, yeah. You so probably, I don't hand anything to anybody. You probably said to your son, let's go to the track right after that bowling, <laughs> after that bowling match. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, honestly, now he beats me on the track too. So I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> well, move on to the grand. <laughs> I th- I th- well, I probably the only thing I got him in his bench press. There you go. <laughs> game's going to have to learn how to play poker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get here. Some yeah, chat, baby. Those are great insights about Jerome and, and you know, those, those make it all the more worthwhile to working with those guys and, and being around them. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a position to teach and coach these elite level athletes. And, but you know, it goes it, enough isn't said about how much we learn, right. And, and how much <laughs> we take from them. And it, it is a gift. It's one of the best parts about the job. So Rich, well, last, I, but sorry. 
no, no. I was just going to say that 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 point. There's not like every player that's come through the dressing room. I've tried to learn something from them. Yeah. Um, regardless, you know, everyone who comes through, they've got something to teach me. Um, and the same with with now the basketball players that come through the the room at the university. Like, I'm I'm going to learn as much as I can from from them what their experiences have been. Take whatever mistake they've made and modify it so that they can be they can have some success that way. So that's huge. It's huge. Agreed. Our last question: um, What would you tell a young aspiring performance coach? What are, What are some of the you know rules to live by by Coach Hesketh? What would you What would you tell him? Wow. Um, Besides, change your career path. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, my, I think the biggest thing would be is is constantly try to learn. Like always, be open to um, new ideas. Uh, and don't be afraid to uh, use the weight room, the gym, and the track as your your own laboratory uh, for experimentation. Um, I, I think, like with any of us, um, you know, we we get into this position, and and sometimes you feel like you're a bit of an imposter because, like, holy cow, like these we're, I'm working with the highest level athlete. You know, this this, this is the best league in the world. Um, do I really deserve to be here? And we're all in that position because we deserve it. Um, but sure as heck, you don't want to be complacent to it. Um, so certainly that ongoing learning process. And like I said, for every, every person that walks through the door has something to teach you. Anyone standing in front of you has, has something that you can learn from. And be critical in what you're reading. Um, be open to those ideas, but also be very willing to experiment and try. And if, if something doesn't work, just throw it away. <laughs> and if it does work, you keep it, right? And it, it seems so simplistic. Um, but after 32, 33 years of doing it, you get a pretty good idea of what works and what doesn't. Um, and to be honest, most of my learning has gone uh, from, you know, going out for beers with other coaches or, you know, just having lunch with someone and just sort of knocking around some ideas and saying, you know, I remember that uh, the, the Bosu ball hang clean snatch with a split position. You ever try that? And the head coach goes, yeah, I tried that. It doesn't work. Okay, well, I won't try that then. And it's, it's, and it's a pretty simple way to figure out if something works or not. It's just to ask. Um, but there are no bad questions. And, and be open to those answers. Um, and try them out. Because what might work for you uh, may not work for everybody and vice versa. Um, but Honestly, don't be afraid to make a make a mistake because that's if you don't learn from it, that's a problem. But as long as you're learning from it, you're on the right path. Great insight, love it. I love, yeah, I love that the experimentation. Just because you know we're not publishing peer-reviewed research articles doesn't mean we're not in <laughs> our own form of research, right? Like what we do in the gym and testing things out is our own form of kind of bro science in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, it, that's, you know, that's a really great point, because back, oh gosh, this is a long time ago, when Matt Nickel was still uh, the head coach with, um, the head strength coach with Toronto, um, he came and he said, yeah, I met this Russian physiologist, and we do these ultra-slow, heavy-load bike rides, so, um, you know, if it, something where you can barely turn the pedals over, and you're, you're trying to push to go about 30 RPM. And the whole principle was you're using fast switch muscle fiber to get your heart rate up so that you're recovering fast switch fiber from um, 
from doing some sort of a cool down that way. Like doing that, your, your heart rate still gets to about 120 to 130 beats a minute. Um, but it's just not a spin, slow twitch fiber. It's a push with fast twitch fiber. And the theory was that you would recover more fast twitch from it. Um, I remember asking the physiologist, head physiologist at Canadian Sport Institute here in Calgary, I said, here's this idea. What do you think? He said, well, the guys feel good after doing it. I said, well, yeah. So we'll keep doing it. I was like, all right. <laughs> well, I've no research there. Just if it works, then go with it. Yeah, practice-based evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then in 20 years, there will be research <laughs> that says it works, right? I, a lot of yeah. time on this stuff happens. Right? Um, yeah, exactly. Rich, thank you so much for this. This is a really fun conversation. Any, do you have any parting words, uh, places where people can reach you? Any, anything to wrap up for our audience? Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I am on social media. I'm, it's not my biggest prowess, but I'm uh, at rich.hesketh on Instagram um, and at richhesketh on Twitter. Um, my Facebook is more family stuff, so you don't need to search. I mean, if you want to be my friend, that's good. But um, other than that, um, and then www.richhesketh.com is my website. If anyone kind of wants to look and see what I look like. <laughs> so Pretty that's handy. it. Yeah. <laughs> Rich, thanks again. It's always great to connect with you and see you again. And, and uh, I look yeah. forward to our conversations. Anytime, you guys. I really appreciate you know, the opportunity to chat with you guys. Awesome. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As always, you can find links to everything discussed, including places to find Rich at the official website of SCAF, prohockeystrength.com. There, you can also find hundreds of free articles dedicated to training hockey players, over a hundred podcast episodes, all for free. Abe Edson from the Springfield Thunderbirds just released a two times a week program for teenage athletes. Usually our program stuff is behind the paywall for our members only, but that program you can see for free. So for that and much more, head on over to prohockeystrength.com. Thanks again.